At the intersection of business, technology, and people is Connected Futures, your guide to business success. Whether it's Siri and Alexa, or those ever chattier bots on retail sites, machines are talking their way into our lives. But as good as some of those talking bots have become, sometimes it still seems as if we may as well be speaking a different language. That's set to change. According to James Landy, an expert on human-computer interactions at Stanford University, we can expect nothing less than a revolution in the coming years. In particular, he sees speech recognition, together with other technologies like cloud-based AI, transforming our work experiences by going beyond simple commands and questions to understand our intent, context, nuances of language, even our emotions. Hi, I'm Kevin Delaney, executive editor and senior writer for Connected Futures. I spoke with James about some of the great opportunities afforded by our increasingly conversant computers, along with the challenges for workers, business leaders, and society as a whole. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks very much, James. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to chat with us today. So voice recognition is the kind of technology that's shown promise for years, but hasn't always had the impact that's been predicted. What is the state of uh, the technology as we speak today? Have we passed any important tipping points? Yeah, so as a technologist, um, who's worked in the field of human-computer interaction, so how we use computing. Um, I've been looking at speech and voice recognition for many years, and it's always been promised as it's going to work really well really soon by the people who have been making that fundamental technology. But I found over the years that it really was never ready. Um, but a big thing really happened three or four years ago, which is, the switch to using deep learning in the speech recognition algorithms has really pushed the technology beyond a certain level that it is now working for many situations. So you'll see this in you know, everyday use of things just like Siri or Google Home or simply using uh, speech to text on your phone that it does quite well. It's great that it, it, it understands kind of simple commands. How close are we to more complex interactions? So we did a study showing that if you had to type in, you know, a short message, something like 50 or 100 characters, like you might be sending SMS back and forth to people, that speech on your stock iPhone with its best text recognition using speech, and in this case, we used Baidu's speech engine, um, but I think you'd find the same results with Google or Apple or others. Um, speech was three times faster than you typing on the virtual keyboard. And the reason is that in the past, speech was always faster to input. We talked faster than you can type. But the difference was speech made so many errors that you then had to correct that that would make the end result slower. What we found is that the speech errors are now at such a low percentage, they're much lower than the key percentage of errors that the keyboard prediction will make. And because of that, given just the fact that speech is faster, you'll make less errors and therefore have less to correct, speech overall will be three times faster. And we did this study in both 
English and in Mandarin Chinese and found pretty much the same result, 2.8 times faster to be accurate. So this is really the result of a convergence of different technologies, isn't it? Cloud AI. Yeah, so the right now to do this, most of the processing is running in the cloud in terms of that machine learning and AI, so deep learning. That's an underlying technology. Other things that have changed over the last uh, you know, five to 10 years is the microphones on your phone are quite good. You know, So in the old days, if you did speech recognition, you had to have one of these fancy headset mics that had a really expensive microphone that might cost you, you know, two or 300 or $400 from Sensenheimer. Um, now, these things are just built into the stock iPhone or high-end uh, Google Android phones. And so you have really good noise-canceling mics, and then the machine learning on the back end doing, is doing much better with noise and um, can recognize what you want. So the, really the next step, though, is can you do more complex things? Can you have interfaces that understand what you're speaking about and what maybe you're gesturing with your body, what we call multimodal, use multiple modalities at once? That's kind of the next step, I think, for design of these things. What about human attitudes towards interaction with machines on this level? Is there still a lot of resistance and do demographic differences come into that? Um, I don't have a lot of uh, detailed research knowledge on that, but one would expect that a younger population is feeling more comfortable interacting with these devices. And, uh, you know, we know that younger generation is more willing to think of doing transactions through computing rather than, you know, talking to a person on the phone. Um, so they might be fine knowing they're talking to a computer and, and not mind it. I mean, we've obviously seen a large uptake in things like um, um, Alexa from Amazon, um, uh, Siri, uh, Google Home, and a variety of other projects products now launching from Apple and Microsoft, et cetera. So people seem to be um, um, okay with this kind of interaction. These are still small market sizes compared to you know, the market for uh, mobile phones, which is, you know, in the billions of units per year, these things are still in the, you know, um, small millions or even maybe high hundreds of thousands. So, you know, we haven't seen the large uptake yet, but they seem to be getting good reviews. It, you know, a lot of these companies are, are investing in them heavily. So I think it's taking off. I do think people run into a wall very quickly and find what these smart speaker devices, for example, or Siri on their phone cannot do, right? So, you know, we're running into less of the speech recognition issue. So speech recognition works, but now the language understanding issue. So what does it mean when you tell it, hey, you know, put me a ticket for tomorrow? Well, what does that mean? That has a lot of ambiguity. What Ticket for what? On an airplane? On a truck? On a train? What are you talking about? Um, so how do you get to that next level of meaning? That's really where the action is at this point. I think the part of just getting speech recognition right, which was a problem for 40, 50 years, that part is working really well now. So the language understanding is really the next part that is the hard problem. In, in your mind, what is the timetable for uh, language understanding to catch up with speech recognition? Well, we've seen a lot of initial good results. So some of the simple things you're gonna do on these speakers um, work well, um, but you know I think it's still a big open problem. So I'd say five or ten years of hard work to do much more complex things. Mm. But there's simple things that can be done now, right? When 
for example, understand the context of someone's utterance to one of these devices. So for example, if I say, what's the weather today? And Alexa comes back and tells me what the weather's gonna be like. And I say, and how about next week? Um, right now, some of these devices are smart enough to say, oh, and the weather the rest of the week or next week is this. Hmm. But a lot of other times you do that follow-up utterance and they have no idea what you're talking about. It's almost like you just ran into a new person on the street and you're starting from scratch. They don't keep around this context of the conversation like we do with humans. So a lot of work right now, just being able to kind of keep that context and know what you've already learned and use that in the next set of utterances is really where, you know, people could do a lot right now and make these things work a lot better in the next one to three years. And I, you already see simple versions of this, like the weather. Um, now, part of the problem is people start to use it. They use the weather and it does that. Then they try it in another situation and it has no clue of what your, what your context was. And so that mismatch, I think, makes people have a, have a trepidation in, in these things because they have a hard time understanding, well, what can it do or what can it do? It's not really clear. And and you're talking a lot about Alexa Siri. It's really personal use, consumer use. Where does it stand in terms of the enterprise workers? Well, definitely in work use is often, not always, where we see kind of some of these leading edge technologies take off first in some more tight niches. So for example, I said, yeah, speech recognition really hasn't worked for the last 50 years until recently. Well, you know, people were doing, for example, example medical transcription from IBM and others, uh, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And that was an area where if you limited the domain to kind of those terms and that knowledge, it worked well enough such that it was better than having to, you know, type up uh, doctor's notes or something like this. So sometimes certain domain specific things will happen earlier. So, you know, speech in the enterprise, um, you know, that medical one is one we had seen for years, and I assume people are still doing a lot there. Um, in terms of newer things with speech, I haven't seen any special domain things, but definitely when is speech good? So speech works well when your hands or eyes are busy doing something else. So we can imagine speech working in certain factory situations or driving situations with, you know, drivers, which is a large part of the economy, truck drivers, et cetera. Those kind of situations, speech could be a really good interface because you're busy doing something else. Um, you know, obviously noise has been an issue in the factory environment, but again, like I said, noise is is being taken care of pretty well by these um, noise canceling microphones. And of course, if we if we look at the history of digital technology adoption, what what you said is true. Some technologies begin in the workplace, but some are driven by consumers, and they get used to some seamless interaction that they're doing on a retail site or wherever, and they expect something similar at work. Yeah, so I would say when we see that, it's not its not that the, uh, the technology doesn't exist in the workplace. The difference is the nicer end user experience is existing in the consumer place, workplace. And then in the workplace, they may already have systems, but they have this really bad user experience because the systems tend to be um, systems that work created custom for narrow markets. They didn't have the wide consumer um, requirements of making them really easy to use for a large number of people. And so what's happened a lot of times, for example, bringing your mobile phone, like your iPhone into the office, when in the office people were running, 
you know, Windows Mobile or some kind of older technology. They had that technology, but it just wasn't a good user experience and people were bringing in the things with a better user experience. So they had technology, they had systems, but they tend to be poorly designed for people and people are starting to demand that user experience that they see in their consumer life, they expect it in the office. So that's more of the mismatch, not that the technology doesn't exist, but it's not well designed and people are raising the bar of their expectations for how well the usability and design should be in their work life. And anytime digital technologies come in, really any any kind of technologies going back to the Luddites, um, there's fears of jobs being replaced. What about the fears of talking, typing bots replacing humans? Or is or or is the more likely scenario where they're simply augmenting them, freeing them to do some more creative tasks? So I think there's much many possible futures. Um, and I think it's actually a requirement um, or a need for us who, who create these technologies to think about those possibilities and focus on a future that we think would be better. So yes, there's a lot of AI and machine learning work that simply is going to replace certain kinds of jobs. We've already seen that, for example, in the legal industry where a lot of lawyers who are really in paralegals hired simply to do discovery and go through hundreds of thousands of pages of documents looking for things have been replaced by machines that read those documents. Um, so the, those do occur. But I also feel like we are at the point of this human-centered artificial intelligence, that if we design it right, we're thinking about how can we use machine learning and AI to augment people and allow them to work on the harder problems, the more creative problems, and not work on the things that are just drudgery, repetitive, that they've done over and over, it's not to replace them, it's to say, hey, make that part of your job easier to do so that you can go further. And, you know, we have seen this, you know, to some extent, some people are replaced, but at the same time, some work gets higher quality. So, you know, if we look 30 or 40 years ago, a lot of people had to have a secretary to support their work, whether it be typing up correspondence, things like this. People tend to do it themselves now and don't have that extra person or there's one person shared by many people. But then at the same time, the quality of the things they create because they have the tools gets better. So I think, yes, we will see some job replacement for people who are doing things that we might think of as repetitive drudgery. Yet for many information workers, it's going to be your capability to do that much more or that much creative work or that much more complex work because now the kind of repetitive things you've more automated and can focus your attention on the things that machines aren't as good at, which is this creative work, um, this surprising work that is not so obvious. Yeah, hopefully that's what will continue to separate us from the machines, our creative abilities. Right. I think, I think creativity and taste and things like that, um, you know, machines may do some of it, but again, I think that's going to be what the human characteristics are, where the humans are good. You know, hmm. if you look at, you know, what AI and machine learning is good at, it's not really been about thinking and coming up with new things. It's about doing things where we have large amounts of data to show what the right or wrong answer is in terms of just a decision. And the more constrained the problems, the better. This is why we see things like chess and Go and things like that. They work really well. But when it comes to things that are fuzzier, it's going to be harder and harder for them to make really good decisions. And maybe 
we want to think about more as kind of a human in the loop where it's people with the machine together kind of working together to kind of do the right thing and um, that will just empower people yeah that raises another interesting question when ai bots etc become essentially another teammate how does that affect leadership you have a group of people, presumably they have diverse talents and they, they bring different skills to the table. How does a leader integrate AI into the equation? I don't really think we're going to see talking bots as a team member or an equivalent of a team member. See it much more as a tool, just like you see your database or your spreadsheet or whatever. It's a tool that somebody's got to be in charge of and they're you know running the tool. I think that's much more likely. I wouldn't really worry about oh, is the bot, are we treating the bot as an equal member of the team? I just don't see that as anywhere in the near future at all. I wasn't worrying about the feelings of the bots. I was, I was, I was simply asking about how to integrate them, yeah, but, but good answer. I don't think they're going to be integrated in that way. They're really going to be a tool. They will aid the decision-making process though, won't they? They will, they will aid decision-making. They will aid many processes. We already see it like in customer support. Maybe you have a bot at the front end that tries to figure out what the customer's problem is and can check if that's just a standard thing we hear over and over. Here's the solution that people have found. And if it's not a problem that we hear over and over, then maybe that then moves you to a real person who now has the information can help solve your problem, right? So we see it as a triaged kind of thing where we move through the bot and the person the plots will get better and better at more and more of that. But in the end, still a person has to, you know, figure out what to do in the end in many of these situations. So what will that do? That will cause the quality of service to feel better because instead of waiting two hours for a person on hold, many people just get their answer right away from, you know, a bot that immediately answered. But then the ones that have the special harder problems, again, we go to people. So and then that just makes me feel for the user that the quality of service got better. Um, and I think that's how we'll see AI and machine learning, at least in the you know five to 10 year period, a lot of kind of, it's a tool that helps improve services, um, helps improve decision-making, but it's still people who are in charge, people who are kind of doing things. Um, these things are a system. Now there's obviously systems where that's very different. Like, so in the driving scenario where we see a lot of autonomous uh, driving uh, research, things like this, yes, those things are going to happen. It's a question of when. Is it five years or is it 15 years? It's going to happen. It's just a question of when will it be good enough for general use such that we'll feel safe about it as a society, we'll have the legal protections all in place properly. Um, I'd say we'll see limited things faster, like a shuttle on a campus that's very well controlled where it would be, maybe a truck on a highway and only on the highway and controlled weather scenarios. But in terms of us saying most of our cars have this kind of capability, I would say we'd be looking much more in the 15 to 20 year uh, time frame before it's good enough. You know, we, we talked about leadership in general, but in particular IT CIOs, they're going to have to make sure that the foundation is in place for a lot of these new technologies as, as they've been doing for the last, you know, 20 plus years. Any differences that they'll have to be dealing with? Yeah. So one issue is just um, the value of the data that they have is becoming higher and higher because, again, most of this uh, AI machine learning systems 
are trained on data. So the data that they have about their business now has much more value than simply um, its value for reporting. It now has real value in terms of that data, if it's properly taken care of and cleaned and maintained, can be used for training these systems that they're gonna use to help with their decision-making, help with um, these agents, et cetera. So figuring out what to do with their data and how to make it valuable is one thing. And then the other one is really on the training side. How do you have the workforce that has the skills to do this? This is not straightforward computer science as it's always been taught. There's now this whole new piece of computing, machine learning, that you have to have people who have taken the courses, have enough of the statistics background to really understand what they're doing. Now, at the same time, industry is also trying to make simpler and simpler tools to allow the users of this technology to be less and less specialized, less and less sophisticated. So whether it's Google, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's Apple, they're all trying to make it more turnkey, but some of this technology just simply isn't turnkey and you gotta have people with the training. So making sure that they're hiring people with that training or sending them back to uh, master's programs to get that kind of a training is gonna be essential for the CIOs. Yeah, that's a big that's a big challenge. We see it all the time. There's such a talent crunch in IT. I think from the education side, it's going to become almost, if not a core requirement, every student, like if they're smart, is encouraged to say, hey, I really should take that AI machine learning class because that's going to really differentiate me from other people in the job market. So we're seeing a lot of the students, like the most popular courses at Stanford are machine learning where we get over a thousand students in one of these courses, right? So a lot of people are signing up. Um, and a lot of that's coming from other fields where they know they need it also in the sciences and engineering, but also at the undergraduate computer science level, most of the students are you know, signing up for these courses because they know what the value will be to them in the marketplace. Of course, AI and machine learning is, is a terrific tool for IT itself. All of those tasks that IT did that took up so much of their time, they're being, they're being freed from it. It's a pretty good case where they're freed up to be creative as well, isn't it? Yeah, in the IT realm, definitely security, network configuration, all of these kind of things where they have big log files about how things are working or not working. Um, machine learning is going to help them detect and diagnose and fix issues much more quickly. And there's lots of companies and startups who are creating tools for that. But again, those are the things that they're gonna um, allow their IT staff to, again, work at the next higher level solving problems that they need for their, their internal customers. Um, so these tools are gonna you know, really change their life again getting rid of some of the drudgery of looking at these voluminous log files, looking for, you know, anomalous data, et cetera. You know, a lot of this may be more automated for them so that they can figure out how to fix it and, you know, buy the better things the next time that don't run into that problem, et cetera. And like you said, also on the security uh, level, there's just a lot of action going there. And that's always going to happen because we know that's always a cat and mouse game that's going to just always be increasing because the adversaries, I guarantee, are using the same kind of technology to find the holes. Absolutely. It's an arms race, right. one, that, one that never seemingly stops. So I wonder if you could just take a few minutes and share how you view a typical 
workday in an enterprise unfolding in three years, five years, 10 years? Well, it obviously depends on the particular field, but you know, for one thing, we already see a little of this in our tools that you know, these agents have a much better idea of you know, what's going on in your workday and helping people plan what they need to do. So whether it's just giving you a better idea what your meetings coming up are, things like this, but even in the car on the way to work, you might have a better way of getting an idea of the status of your job and what needs to be done if you're in a really fast changing world. So again, we can use these agents and these interfaces to more easily query these things rather than you know, have to be on the phone talking to somebody or wait till I get there to look at the screen. We might be able to query some of this before we get to work. And then at work, obviously, one of the things these will allow is more adaptive behavior on the part of employees to things going on in real time, you know, because a lot of this information is changing. The more we can understand what's changing and when, um, people might be able to adapt their schedules and what they're working on to what's going on immediately. But again, it really depends on the kind of industry you're in and the kind of work you're in. But we can just imagine, you know, what if we all had a smart secretary to help us with our tasks? How would that change the kind of work you would do? Most of us are in positions where we can afford to have that type of person. But, you know, I think if as these agents and things get better, a lot of that work, you might be able to have an agent that's helping you with some of these kind of tasks so that, again, your focus could be on the hard, creative, what many of us think of fun problems that you're working on. So that, to me, would be the big change in the workday of the future is simply offloading some things to an agent that can help you with these things. We can go back and look at some of these visions of the future that different companies and researchers have made and start to see them happening. Apple had a really famous one called the Knowledge Navigator in the late 80s where they had this intelligent agent and it really could take care of planning your travel and understanding your appointments and responding to people in things that are very routine. And it was voice recognition based. Yeah, and it used voice recognition, but will these things will use voice, they'll use vision, all of these cues together, emotion even, understanding your tone, right? You're going to need all of that, just like a real intelligent assistant would understand from your emotion, your gesture, et cetera. So the more of that technology that gets in place, I think a future is we will have this intelligent agent. Now, there may be other technologies like AR and VR that also come into our lives, but I think this intelligence is even a bigger a bigger win in terms of the knowledge worker. You know, because many knowledge workers were doing things with data, spreadsheets, emails, et cetera. And a lot of those things, many of them are routine and a lot of people are simply overwhelmed with the quantity that comes at them. So how can we kind of manage many of those things that are routine and get you to focus on the ones that really need your intelligence and creativity, again, to solve? You know, every one of us suffers from this kind of information overload. And so the question is, will those systems offload some of that information while not creating even more? That's the big trade-off, right? Do we just have these intelligent agents that are now creating all this extra work by sending you email um, for me so that you're getting even more to deal with? So, you know, that's what we're going to see. That's obviously where you add technology to make your life more seamless. It complicates things. So you need technology on top of that to simplify the, uh, the previous layer of technology. Right. 
Um, but it, you know, it's a thing we've seen before. And I do, although I do think this smart machines is a, a huge change and will be a huge change. It will not all happen at once. It's going to be this thing that happens over the next five to 20 years. And so we'll figure out which things work, which don't, which need more work. Um, similarly, you know, the PC, right. It, it didn't happen in one year, you know, it happened, you know, between 1980 and 2000 as people changed how they worked and you know it's going to be a similar you know long period of time as we adjust the technologies as industries understand how they add value um, again it's not just computing we saw the same thing with electricity it took you know 50 years or so before that really impacted how factories and work was configured right um, so it takes time for industry to understand how these change their businesses and how to take advantage and leverage them more. So we'll see this happening over time. So there's a lot of threatening feelings, I think, among workers of feeling, am I going to lose my job? And yes, some people will, but the people who keep on top of the technology and how to use it are going to um, find better jobs in some ways. And new jobs that didn't exist before will be created. We don't even know what they're called yet. And so at many leading places like here at Stanford, people are trying to start to think about what that will be. What will it mean from an economic labor perspective as well as a technology perspective? And we need to get ahead of this a lot better than we did with, let's say, globalization, where you know there was a lot of displacement. And it didn't all happen in one year. You know, we didn't see the Midwest and other places be decimated by um, foreign imports in one year. This happened over 20 or 30 years. And so the key is to be studying it now and try to understand well what things are we going to do to help people as they retrain and move to new jobs so that we don't have this huge displacement and it's a societal challenge isn't it it's not just companies industries right it's a societal challenge and in some ways companies and industries don't often feel like that's their problem right their problem is to you know make money or satisfy the shareholders or satisfy their employees so it is definitely something that government and nonprofit and university have to be thinking about to kind of give a roadmap of how we might make that transition work better. Hmm. And education will need to change as well, won't it? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of changes in education in terms of whether it's online classes, um, you know, whether that's really affected the degrees at kind of the top universities, I don't know, but I think it really has affected the way somebody would get retraining. You know, you might used to be, let's say you were in the Bay Area, you would go to UC Extension or take, you know, an evening class. Well, now a lot of that work, instead of doing that, you might just do it in MOOC online or something like this. So um, we haven't seen the disruption some people may have predicted in terms of, oh, the universities are gonna go out of business uh, because we're all gonna go to college on MOOCs. Um, but we have seen certain parts of retraining and other uh, uh, educational aspects change. And I think, again, even in the universities, we need to change and figure out if machine learning and AI is going to affect society in a big way, it needs to be in all fields and how they see it affecting them, not just in technology fields like computer science. And people are going to have to think creatively, and that's going to have to come in in, the, in education. The sort of rote way of learning is not going to work in a world where people are freed from rote tasks. Right. So rote learning doesn't work. We've already seen that with rote memorization of information. Does it really make sense when you can just look it up on Wikipedia? Um, so more and more hands-on learning 
uh, more and more um, problems that are different for each student rather than just, hey, we're all solving the same problem. You know, you're going to see more and more of that. I think we've seen that in universities over the last 20, year, 20 years, but I think it's just going to be even more uh, of kind of more of a customized experience um, so that those students are prepared to go out there and work on problems that are unique to the situation that they're in. Well, this has been great, James. If if you have any other uh, closing thoughts, particularly on the future of work, how it's evolving, love to hear it. So I think the future of work, uh, one thing that's really interesting is that um, from a technology perspective, we've moved from these different devices over time, from whether it's the mainframe to the mini computer, to the PC, to the phone. And history has shown us that whatever that next thing is, it already exists. It's already out there. We're just not sure yet what it is is going to be the one that's the big thing. And it won't replace those other things, just like the phone didn't replace the PC, the PC didn't replace the mainframe. They all exist still. It's just they've become more of a niche and there's a new thing that takes a new place. So that next technology, I think, is going to be an intelligent technology that uses AI and machine learning. Like I say, it already exists. It's not good enough yet. But that's what's going to change is our work is going to be using some new device, some new intelligence, in addition to these other things that we already use. And so just kind of fitting it into our kind of workflow, our workplace is going to be the key for people just to understand it's not going to be a sudden, hey, here's the new thing. We're all using this. It's going to be this gradual thing. It's already happening, whatever it is. It's just not obvious what the winner is of the moment. AR, VR, smart machines, uh, brain computer interfaces, who knows? Uh, but it's an exciting time to live and you just got to be out there uh, learning new things to stay abreast of it. And as you say, it won't be without its upheavals the way technology change always brings, but you're pretty optimistic, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I think there will be upheaval. The key is to make sure we are aware of that and try to design for that, try to anticipate that, try to take care of the people who are, have the biggest impact. Like we know this thing with drivers is gonna happen with cars. So what are we doing about that? What are we gonna try? train those people to be. So paying attention to those things is really important. But at the same time, it will create new jobs, new opportunities, and the overall quality of life hopefully will be better. So we should be focusing on both. How do we create the new jobs? What are the new jobs looking like? How does this make your job better? As well as how do we deal with the people who get clearly displaced because their job just is changed in such a major way or eliminated. So there's good and bad, and we've got to be aware of both. Not, not be techno optimist, nor should we, you know, try to stop the future that's just going to happen. We should go in with our eyes wide open. Special thanks to my guest, James Landy from Stanford University, and thank you for listening. This is Kevin Delaney for Connected Futures. insights, analysis, and the voice of thought leaders, go to the Connected Futures online magazine at connectedfuturesmag.com.